Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Continuing in 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 7 through 11 this morning. And the Bible here sounds a note of warning and motivation. The end is at hand. And because the end is near, there are some specific ways that we should be living out the will of God. So Peter gives his readers some very practical instructions on how to end our time on this earth so that we are properly prepared for our eternal future. You could call it basic instruction before leaving earth or the acronym B-I-B-L-E, right? So, with that and said, that gives us our instruction and it gives us our wise counsel regarding Christian living and ministry. So God is concerned about our ministry. So Peter has written about such important subjects as being serious and watchful in our prayers, practicing hospitality, and above all things, sharing fervent love with one another. It is our ultimate command, is it not, that we love one another. In other words, Peter turns his attention to practical ministry within the body of Christ. And within these verses, we find four specific instructions and one specific goal, as we will go through those this morning. And after mentioning Christians who had died in verse 6, verse 7 then refers to the imminent return of Christ for his church. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Another benefit of suffering, as we have gone through this for several weeks now, but another benefit of suffering is that it keeps us focused on eternity. It's when you're going through tough times, difficult days, seasons of suffering, pressures and persecution that you long for heaven. Am I right? You long for heaven in those situations. Good times, nice things, easier days have a tendency to shift our focus off of eternity. And it's when the tough times come, when the body hurts, when the heart breaks or the wallet is empty that we say, I don't belong here, right? I'm longing for heaven. And fortunately, the end is near. Janikin, or draw near, or approaching, used in James chapter 5, verse 8, to refer to the second coming or is closing in on us. The shortness of the time remaining to any and all of us is motivation to live for and serve Jesus Christ. So, Scripture urges us to... Be prepared for the end. 
whether it is caused by the return of Christ or by our death. We need to be repaired, uh, prepared. We should live our lives in a way in light of the fact that our end is near. And such perspective helps us recognize how many activities don't make an eternal difference. So much of what Christians do is little more than that rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And that's how it should be looked at. What is the significance of it? Well, the ship is going down, right? Well, maybe if I go into this compartment, I'll just live a little longer, right? We've all seen the movie. Well, most of us have seen the movie. But I mean, that is the analogy here. God is saying that this ship is sinking. So what do we do in the meantime? We get as many people as we can off that sinking ship. We bring them to Jesus Christ. And we should live our life in that and recognize that. When Christ returns, he will find us asleep at the switch and reclined in leisure. Or he will catch us diligently working to fulfill his great commission to make disciples and teach them his word. Why are we here today? I was forced to come. Some might say that. Well, the kiddos, most of the kiddos aren't in here, but that's what they might say. What would you say? What would you say? Why am I here? Why do I put myself through suffering? I suffer for Christ. What does that mean? Well, in regards to today's modern church, Eugene Patterson, in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, writes this. It is not difficult in our world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. It's easy to present, difficult to sustain. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there is no Dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for mature Christian discipleship is slim in and about our culture. Anything, even news about God, can be sold and it is packaged freshly. But what happens when it loses its novelty? It goes on to the garbage. There's a great market for a religious experience. And some of you are seeing this in today's news. There is a great need for this religious experience to happen so that I know God exists or I know that this is real. We don't need religious experiences. We need the truth. We need to preach the truth. We need to teach the truth. We must embody the truth. There's a website that claims to predict when you will die. After you answer a series of questions, your projected date of death appears along with a digital clock counting down the number of seconds you have left to live. Oh, that's fun. 
It's all based on current life expectancy charts, but seeing it on a computer screen makes it more vivid, as if the site is saying, hey, time is slipping away. What are you doing with it? Jesus said, be ready. Be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Luke chapter 12. God, in his wisdom, doesn't tell us the day of our death, nor do we know the day of Christ's return. But the Bible urges us to live for Christ and be prepared for either event. Whether it's two seconds from now or 20 years from now should make no difference in our life. The truth has been presented. The truth has been written. What do we do with it now? Do we sit on it? Do we say, oh, it's great. I I know what I need to know. So I'm covered. What about others? What about your co-workers, your friends, family? They're just supposed to fend for themselves? That, That is the prevailing philosophy in today's society. You do it yourself. Feel the way you want to feel. Do what you want to do. It's your life. But it is not our life, is it? Our life is put in God's hands. The realization of our future reality ought to motivate every believer to make sure they have oil in their lamp. Amen? Peter gives a wonderful prescription to help us become ready for the end of time and the end of our life. And if we will only adopt these guidelines, we will be ready for Christ. And these guidelines are to, first off, keep us sane and sober in prayer, have unfailing love for one another, be hospitable to one another, and without complaint. I know that's a tough one. And keep serving one another. It's not a one and done thing. This is a race. It is a distance race. It is not a sprint. And most of us are not going to get to that end until we meet Jesus Christ in the clouds. But at least we have that hope. We have the direction. You see, the first command that we will prepare for is for the end of life, and the judgment of Christ is to be sane and sober in prayer. So, we need to advance and deepen our prayer life for our spiritual vitality depends upon that prayer. And the lives of others around us depend upon that prayer. Christians, therefore, are to be clear-minded, be of Sound mind. Mark 5.15, as to their true priorities, godly thinking is at the heart of communication with God. Along with being sane of mind, we are to be sober or self-controlled. 1 Peter chapter 1, we talked about this several months ago. As well, this means we have not let the ways of the world intoxicate our thinking. 
Simply, it is refusing to lose our spiritual concentration or alertness. Pray accesses all the resources of God. But we cannot pray properly if our minds are divided due to worldly pursuits or ignorance or divine truth or indifferent to divine purposes. We must refuse, we must refuse to let ourselves get distracted and lured away from the things of God by our work. Again, leisure, hobbies, self-interest. You see, we become sane and sober not so that we can pray, but that we will be able to pray effectively and pray appropriately and wisely. Our prayer is to be clear, reasonable, sober, mutual communication with God. Secondly, we must have unfailing love for the church. Verse 8. In view of the Lord's certain return in victory and with judgment, Christians are given the priority of life. In verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. You see, the second instruction which will prepare us for the end is to keep fervent in your love for one another. As Christians' unselfish love and concern for others should be exercised to the point of sacrificially living (laughs) to the point where it's for the welfare of others. Not for ourselves, but for others. For we are to love each other deeply. And deeply or strained as it's used in the Greek was used to describe the tout muscles of an athlete who strains to win a race. A good translation would be a full strength or maximum effort, holding nothing back and giving it all that you got. You ever been in a race before? I know Pastor Martin talked about running a race a while back and how you get to a point where your muscles are failing And you're not sure if you're going to be able to finish. But somehow you gather that extra strength. You get that extra oomph for that second wind, so to speak. And you're not even thinking about it anymore. This is what God has commanded us to do. That we're so enthralled in our Christian life. That it's not even a thought anymore. It's just something we do. We react to God's word and we fulfill it. We react to the things that God has called us to do, and then we do them. Not with complaint, not with, oh, I don't know if I can do that. No, we jump into it. We realize that it's not to our own volition anyways that we accomplish these things. God has called us to do this because he wants to do it through us. Not because we have some great special skill that he can't handle. Granted, God's given all of us here special gifts. Some of us are utilizing them and some of us are not. But that's what God is saying. We should be using those gifts. We should be doing these things not because we have to. We do them because we want to. We do them because God has placed that upon our hearts to do so. 
Webster's New World Dictionary describes fervent as showing great warmth or feeling or devotion. When joined together with love, the two words make the statement, above all, hold unfailing your love for one another. So let your love be without reservation. Let your love be without hesitation. Let your love be without qualification because such love is the most needed quality in a church. Where God's love permeates the lives of all of his people and genuine forgiveness becomes a reality. Past hurts, harmful actions are forgotten. Folks in the flock stop keeping count of other sins and they remove the scoreboard completely. Don't we get tired of keeping up with everybody else? I do, even though it's my job. But God is saying we don't have to do that. That's not our job. Our job is to love. Fervent love, Peter teaches us, is the incentive that promotes forgiveness, cleansing, and God's healing. Notice that such love covers over a multitude of sins. Covers meaning does not stir up or broadcast sins. Because this kind of strenuously maintained love is not blind, but it sees and accepts the faults of others. So we need to be praying like this. We need to be saying, Lord, help us to love and accept others unconditionally, just as you accept me. Have you noticed that when we forget something, that it's just a slip of the mind, we might say? But when somebody else forgets, it's gross negligence. When we snap at someone, it's simply because we're having a bad day. But if they snap at us, we see them as mean-spirited. I can't believe you did that. But as soon as we do the same thing, it's, oh, well, this is why. I have an excuse. If we're late for an appointment, it's because of the hectic day we're having. But if someone else is late, we accuse them of being irresponsible. And we may laugh at that, and it is funny. But isn't this the way we behave? It's easy to condemn and criticize others for their shortcomings while excusing our own. We need to be as gentle when confronting the faults of others as we are with our own. Because we all have faults, don't we? And while someone's fault may strike a sour note in us, be assured that one of our faults may strike a sour note in them. Jesus did not tell us to judge one another, but to love one another. How much stronger the body of Christ would be if we used our strengths to complement others and our voices to build them up. And we need to build one another up. For as God's people, he holds us responsible for sharing his love with the lost world. It is 
called the Great Commission for a reason. Not the okay commission. Not the, it's pretty good commission. It is the Great Commission. There is significant importance. It is why we are here. Amen. Thirdly, we need to be hospitable and uncomplaining. Verse 9. You see, the third instruction which prepares us for the end is to be hospitable and uncomplaining, and it is found there. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Pretty simple. (laughs) You don't need Webster's Dictionary to tell us what this means. You don't even need a commentary to tell us what this means here. It's laid out for us. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And this command requires us, though, to go beyond being nice and accommodating to others. The primary reason for hospitality is not to entertain the guests, but to meet their needs. It is providing the guest a place to stay, food to eat, a listening ear for conversation, a heart to express love and acceptance. During times of persecution, hospitality was especially welcomed by Christians who were forced to journey to new areas. Christian love was displayed through extending free food and lodging, offering hospitality, being friendly to strangers. How many of you have been friendly to a stranger in the last few days? But notice hospitality is to be extended without grumbling. Literally means <laughs> do it cheerfully. Do it willingly, right? It refers to being repeated words of complaint indicating a person who gripes and complains incessantly to others with the sole purpose of stirring up trouble against someone else. Because that's what it does, doesn't it? You might think you're just doing it out of fun or jest, but that stirs up stuff in people. It provokes them. Why would we complain about having to help someone? Because we hear this all the time. I really don't want to help them. Can't they call somebody else? You ever picked up your phone, you see the number, and you're like, ah, not today. But why do we feel that way? Why would we complain about having to help someone? Maybe it's the cost. Maybe it's the inconvenience. Maybe it's the effort we have to put in. Maybe it's because nobody says thank you for your service. Seems like they're always asking you to do something else. Something more. You see, the demands of hospitality were probably frequent and heavy because... Causing, basically it caused hard feelings. If they were the only ones doing it, there may have been resentment and complaining. But such opportunities to show Christian hospitality ought to be seen as a command from God because it is. It's not a only if or and or but. It is. We are commanded to do so. 
The same word used in Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Because it will be a shining testimony to those people who live in a dark, crooked, and perverse world. That's why we do it without complaining. People turn away from the gospel because of the way Christians have grumbled and complained about each other and about having to help others. And who knows? You might be entertaining an angel. Throughout 1 Peter, in the sermon series, Navigating Home, these are the tools and the steps that help us get to where we need to be. And the great thing about it is God is encouraging us every step of the way. He's right there with us. Fourthly, we must serve one another. The fourth instruction which will prepare us for the end is serving as a good steward and is found in verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, uh, its emphasis is that we are to service each other with our spiritual giftedness. Use the gifts that God has given you in some form of capacity. It's not because you're not given an opportunity because we all know that's not true. God always provides a way. We just may not see it. We may not hear it. We may not understand it. But when we seek his counsel, he reveals it before us. And then we go, ah, should have had a V8, right? It's right there for the taking. God provides it for us. God has given every believer a ministry. And Paul tells us the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12. The biblical teaching is clear. We all have a place where God wants us to serve in a significant fashion. Everyone has a spiritual gift, an ability that equips us to serve God in a special way. God custom designed you for a purpose, for an assignment that only you can do. We are a body of believers because we work together for God's good. Not everyone in this room is gifted to do everything. And those of you who have tried to do things and failed understand that it takes a body of believers to fulfill God's purpose, especially within the church. Da Vinci only painted one Mona Lisa. Beethoven only composed one-fifth symphony. And God only made one version of you. You may ask, how can I discover my purpose? How do I discover God's design for me? You see, when God gives you an assignment, he also gives you the skill set. He gives you the ability to discover your assignment, study your skill set, and then use it. Your ease with numbers, your love of computers, your gift for interior design, all of which I am not good at. I can't even design my own self here. Need the help of the wife, right? But it's laid out. We have the skill set. 
We have the ability. You know, others stare at the Bible and they see it as a book of words. They see it as a book that holds up other books on our bookshelf. Maybe it's a doorstop, I don't know. But God gave us this as a blueprint. A blueprint, and you read them and you say, I was made for this. I was made for this. Heed the music within, then dance to it. Not an actual dance, but follow God's word. Let him lead you where he wants to lead you. No one else hears it the way that you do. Look back at what you have consistently done well. Have you loved to do what you do? Stand at the intersection of your desires and your successes, and you'll see your uniqueness. The Spirit has given each of us a special way of serving others. Away with this depreciating, I can't do anything. And it's arrogant opposite. I have to do everything. No, you don't. No, you don't. Paul said our goal is to measure up to God's plan for us. Don't worry about skills you don't have. And don't covet strengths others do have. Maximize your God-given gifts. Kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. That is what's commanded to us. If you're not sure what God has called you to do, get down on your knees and ask him to reveal it to you. But that's where we get scared, isn't it? We're afraid what God might say. We're afraid where God might place us. We're afraid we're not going to be able to handle the position that God has given us. And so we back off. Notice that our gifts are to be employed in serving or enriching each other. We're so worried about how we're going to look, how we're going to be perceived. Instead of doing this because you know God's doing it through you. And you're not going to worry about that anymore. Because it is not for your benefit. It is for the benefit of others. When we employ our spiritual gifts, others benefit. And others are encouraged. Others gain fresh hope. Interestingly, so do we. We all want our kids to be helpful, right? When they show a helpful spirit, it demonstrates that they're following God's commands to use the gifts they've received to serve others. God wants his followers to serve the people around them. But have you ever thought that there might be more to God's plan? Have you ever thought that maybe this isn't just it? That maybe there's more? And sure, He wants us to serve others to benefit his kingdom and those being helped. That's his plan. But what about the person doing the helping? It turns out the helper benefits greatly too. 
A study at the University of Missouri found that kids who engaged in pro-social behaviors such as volunteering and helping others were less likely to take part in risky behaviors as young adults. It doesn't take a college professor to go, yeah, of course. In other words, when your kids help others, they help themselves live more godly lives and build their moral character. As parents, we want our kids to be kind, considerate, selfless, and respectful. And we can preach those character traits to them, and we can model them in our own actions. But one of the most effective ways to build those values may to be encouraging your kids to serve. As a pastor, I am encouraging you to serve for the benefit of others. But watch what you get in return. Blessings beyond measure. The Bible teaches that believers are called to be good stewards of God's vast resources. And he called these resources the manifold grace of God. The gifts God give are varied. Some are very public, some are not. But all are significant. Paul likens our gifts to parts of the body, and each part is important, and none can exist for long without the others. In other words, what we do here is not successful unless I see every one of us here working for that common goal. You know, it's always said that 10% of the church does 90% of the work in church. That might be true. But what are we doing to change that? What is the, the climate that we need to change in order for that to happen? I'll tell you what it is. Encouragement. We need to encourage one another. We need to be accountable to one another. Each part is important, and none can exist long without the other. Do we understand that? That the church is healthy to the degree that the people of the church are involved in ministry. When people sit on the sidelines, the church becomes ill and handicapped. In other words, God needs us. We need you. The move towards more and more of a professional ministry is a move further and further from the biblical truth. Ministry is not for professionals. Understand that. It is not for professionals. It is for disciples. It is for disciples. When we minister in some capacity, we become channels of his grace. Our faithful service reveals God's grace to those around us. But the converse is also true. When we fail to do what God has called us to do, we restrict his grace in our own lives and the lives of others. You've received God's grace, right? You know what it means to be forgiven, right? You want to serve your master, right? Well then, unless you use that grace and mercy and love to serve each other, 
You are a bad steward because you are hoarding it and not using it to bless other people. That's what the verse says. It says, get busy serving God and others. If you want to be a good steward and have your master say, well done, good and faithful servant, then you need to ask God for the privilege of serving others who are part of your church family. And according to these verses, your participation in the church family is not for your benefit. It is for the benefit of others. So to whom in the church are you being a blessing? Who are you blessing? We talked about trials and tribulations. And we've all been through them. And some of us are currently going through them. God can be using those things to bless others. Why do bad things happen to good people? We hear that all the time. When we ask for wisdom, doesn't God give us opportunities to help others who are struggling? When we ask for forgiveness, isn't God going to give us an opportunity to forgive somebody because they may have wronged you? This is how this works. This is how ministry works. If you want to be a good steward, have your master say, well done, good and faithful servant. You need to ask God for that privilege of serving others. Notice the warning in verse 11 that accompanies the exercising of our gifts. Whoever speaks, let him speak. As it were, the utterances of God. And whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies. The two Provisions that we are to rely on in serving are, first of all, God's words. And then God's strength. If you've been given the opportunity to teach, understand that you are handling the very word of God. Do not give your own opinions, but base your words on scripture. Not only is there the upfront gifts, there are behind the scene gifts. If you are called to serve or help people, do so in the strength God supplies and not in your own strength. If you serve in God's strength, you can serve continuously, day in and day out. It starts to become fun almost, depending on what God has called you to do. I know God calls us to do very unfun and things that are not desirable. But he calls us nonetheless. I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And that which I can do, by the grace of God, I will do. With that simple commitment, God can use us to revive even the most barren of people, barren of lands, God can do it. George Whitfield, Whitefield said as he was laying there dying, Lord Jesus, I am weary in thy work, but not of it. Peter says God will supply what we need. 
He also says our enthusiastic service will bring glory to the Father. And then finally, with these four things that we must apply, we come to this. We have a life goal that we pursue. And again, verse 11 ends with a purpose clause which reveals the reason why we should follow these four instructions. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why be sane and sober in prayer? Why have unfailing love for the church? Why be hospitable and uncomplaining? And why serve as a good steward? So that God is glorified. So that is the purpose statement. Everything we do is to give God glory. God is to get the glory in everything that we do. You say, now hold on for a moment. I thought coming to church was something we did so that we could get something out of it. I thought we were supposed to have our needs met. I thought that we were supposed to be fed. I thought that I was supposed to be blessed by the music. I thought that I was supposed to feel welcomed and wanted. I thought the church existed to help me. I thought people were supposed to invite me over. I thought God put teachers in the church so I could grow. I thought the nursery workers served so I could worship without crying babies. By the way, bring them in. That's okay. The Bible says, so that God is glorified. Amen. God is glorified. God is not glorified unless you are more concerned about others during your participation in the church than you are of yourself. God is not glorified unless you are serving in his strength. Take your eyes off yourself and your schedule and your abilities and your wants and your needs and comfort and serve for the glory of God Almighty. Amen. To the teaching that God be glorified in all we do. Peter cannot... Help but offer God's words of praise and blessing. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The praise and credit for Christian ministry should always be given to Christ. Amen. Let me conclude this morning with our beginning thought. And that is time is short. Time is short so we must prepare for the end. And we need even more encouragement sometimes to get going. Let me read Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Your effort for the Lord's glory is not in vain. Your prayers make a difference. Your love will not be overlooked. Your ministry, however humble it may be, will be rewarded. We should live circumspectively because Christ is coming again. We prepare to meet Christ by continually growing 
in love and in service to God and others. And don't grow weary in well-doing. We can never do too much for the one who did so much for us. So keep your eyes on the good shepherd and see the needs in his flock. Then move out to serve in love. But remember, always do it in his strength and for his glory. Amen. Dave. Come and close us in our benediction this morning. As we go into the week, may we look forward to being a difference maker in our sphere of influence to those we will encounter. As we stand together, let's close the service with, I hope, a song from our hearts that we're together. And I'm so glad. here this morning, I pray that we are good stewards of the gifts that you have given us, that we use them to the best of our ability, not for our own good, but for the good of benefiting others. And Lord, we know that when we do that, you bless us richly. Thank you for our time together again this morning. And as we leave here, I pray that you keep us safe to our appointed destinations, that you bring, it back, bring us back here this evening. As we enjoy the ministries that are offered here on campus. And Lord, we look forward to the opportunities and the things that you will place before us. So that we can also honor you and glorify you alone. Again, thank you for our time. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.